You're listening to Salmon Farming Inside and Out, a podcast series brought to you by Aquaculture North America. This podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. Hello and welcome to another episode of Salmon Farming Inside and Out. I'm Marilyn de Guzman. And I'm Ian Roberts. It's nice to be back with you again, Marilyn. Yes, nice to see you again, Ian. Yeah, this is uh, is it's a good day for me. I, I I saw some news today. For those that don't know, we're recording early November of 2023, and uh, today was uh, the release of the updated Collar Fair Index, which ranks the environmental, social, and governance uh, um, indicators for all the world's largest animal protein producers. And uh, I'm not surprised, but I'm pleased that, again, salmon farming companies rank very, very high in this index. Uh, out of the top 10 spots, seven of them are salmon aquaculture companies. And that really speaks to just the, you know, the product itself uh, and seafood in, in general about its, uh, its performance uh, on environmental, social and governance issues. So, so well done to salmon farmers around the world. And this kind of leads into a bit of our topic today around uh, climate change and um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. So it's it's going to be an interesting conversation today, Marilyn. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's actually a great segue. And, and congratulations to the farming fish farming sector uh, for for making to making it to the top list. And also, you know, being November, as you know, at the end of November, it's going to be um, you know the COP twenty eight summit. So another climate change um, event uh, happening. So really ties in well with our guests and our topic of discussion today. But before we begin. Here's our trivia question, which we will answer at the end. The earliest evidence of fish farming dates back to ancient China, Egypt, and Rome. But the modern form of fish farming was introduced in 1733. In which European country was modern fish farming first introduced? All right. That, that might actually be one that could stump us all. That's, that's, a, that's a good question. <laughs> no pressure on our <laughs> guest today. We've had easy ones until today. Well, that's great. So, so with uh, with no further ado, I, I'd love to introduce our guest for today, and that's uh, Dr. Holly Freilich. She is assistant professor who earned her uh, Bachelor of Science in Animal Biology from the University of California, Davis, and her PhD is in Marine Ecology and Fishery Scientists uh, Sciences from the University of Washington. She took an interdisciplinary approach, studying the impacts of anthropogenic stressors such as hypoxia and exploited marine ecosystems and species. And I'm just surprised I got that out in one piece. Well done. Um, as a postdoctorate scholar, she studied the global potential of sustainable offshore aquaculture. Dr. Freilich uh, started her assistant professor appointment at the University of California, Santa Barbara in 2019, joining the departments of ecology, evolution, and marine biology and environmental studies where she is exploring the interactions and impacts of aquaculture, wild fisheries, and climate change. She is currently a lead or co-investigator on several North American and international seafood and aquaculture projects, as well as contributing author to the AR6 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's a report from North America and the fifth United States National Climate Assessment. Uh, let's say she's well qualified to talk on today's subject about climate change and fisheries and specifically aquaculture. So uh, 
Uh, Holly Freilich, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Ian and Marilyn. Really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're we're really looking forward to this conversation. A lot to learn. Um, and I know that was quite the introduction, which I might have hacked up uh, significantly. So please tell us a bit more about your research focus and, and what you do. Sure. Yeah, I think you did a wonderful job. So I'll keep it keep it brief. But Basically, in the Freilich Lab, we kind of do a little bit of everything around aquaculture. Aquaculture is kind of the center um, of my research. And then the kind of things or associations with it um, is, is kind of the key. So we kind of have three pillars in my research. One is related and I would say taking up most of my time these days around climate change, mostly kind of the pressures and threats that climate change poses for aquaculture globally and with an emphasis on North America, United States um, over the last several years. Um, and then we have conservation aquaculture, which is near and dear to my heart. How I got into aquaculture was sturgeon farming. I was a sturgeon wrangler for several years at the Center for Aquatic Biology and Aquaculture. So um, have a soft spot in my heart for conservation aquaculture. And then last but not least, the fisheries kind of interaction because my PhD training was in wild capture fisheries. Um, looking at things like the Dungeness crab fishery up in Puget Sound. Right. So, Hallie, this might be a question that's oversimplifying things, but is climate change a threat or an opportunity for aquaculture? Yeah. And, and of course, the answer is it depends. Some of my work, uh, certainly at the global scale, and we're starting to do a bit more downscaling, which is just a fancy way of getting higher resolution information and modeling um, at a regional or local scale. But even if we look at the kind of global patterns of what we're anticipating to see for, say, finfish aquaculture or bivalve aquaculture, we see heterogeneous outcomes. So it really depends where you are in the world. So we see winners in climate change areas, but we also see areas that are going to be heavily impacted. Um, and one area in particular that we see that's pretty consistent, um, which also matches wild capture fisheries and agricultural models, is that kind of equatorial band, unfortunately, where a lot of aquaculture tends to happen, um, especially in Asia, is going to be kind of heavy hit for especially for um, uh, finfish and particularly bivalves. So it really depends if we're talking about northern reaches, we actually see like some impacts um, or at least uh, challenges for say areas of Norway. But at the same time, we see regions open up because you see warmer waters that allows some expansion of suitability in some areas. So offshore aquaculture could be more doable in areas that right now are just too cold. Now, as, as we talk about climate change and carbon uh, emissions, I guess we should start by just being very open and honest about what impact farming has on, on climate change. So food production is no doubt a, a contributor to global CO2 emissions. Um, let's talk about that and, and maybe how aquaculture compares to that, uh, you know, food production and, and CO2 emissions. Sure. Yeah. And I would say it's, it's kind of the, the component, a large component to uh, greenhouse gas food production in general, mostly coming from the agricultural sector. So the best estimates we have right now for greenhouse emissions contribution from agriculture and the other sectors, fisheries and aquaculture combined is anywhere between 25 to 30 percent of all global emissions every year, which is pretty substantial. 
Um, and it's usually overlooked. Other sectors tend to get more attention um, than the agricultural sector, likely because it's really challenging. It's very disparate. You get small scale farmers, like large scale farmers. How do you tackle something like that? It's very hard. Um, but nonetheless, it's something that is really important, especially because we all have to eat. So we have to get our food from somewhere um, and there is no free lunch, but there are better lunches. Uh, so if we look at actually comparing across the various sectors, uh, what we see is that the agricultural sector, and this is kind of linked to scale as well, the ag industry is just insanely large, right? And ubiquitous. So it's gonna have a larger footprint but it also has cows and ruminants produce a lot of methane that contribute to that number. So the uh, agricultural industry um, kind of accounts for the vast majority, about two thirds of all that emissions. Um, and then if we kind of look across um, the various sectors at fisheries and aquaculture, fisheries, the best estimate we have is about 2%. And same with aquaculture, about 2%. Um, and of course, we're going to have to improve those estimates because we actually don't give aquaculture enough attention. Um, in terms of those estimates, aquaculture is very rarely even considered in the kind of overall assessments in IPCC and the National Climate Assessment. So there's definitely more work to be done, but those are kind of the best estimates we have right now. As it relates to fish farming, aquaculture, can you talk about some of those actual facts that could be attributed to climate change? Yeah, I would say, well, in aquaculture is one of the industries that's on the front lines. They're seeing the impacts way sooner than a lot of other sectors or certainly in certain regions. Um, for instance, ocean acidification in North America that's a really great example. The only reason we were able to more quickly identify the association between carbon being sucked into the ocean and, and causing acidified waters was because of the shellfish industry there. So one of the largest shellfish producers in North America kept losing their crop. Their juveniles just kept dying over and over again. And that was the canary in the coal mine that they thought they knew what was going on and realized they, that they didn't. And so scientists and farmers came together and identified ocean acidification as kind of the new redheaded stepchild um, of climate change. And that it poses a really, really big threat to calcified organisms, particularly their larvae. And so the industry has responded in kind of building out hatcheries, moving locations to where their hatcheries are for better worse um, related to that. So it's those types of things that we're seeing in real time that were happening right over a decade ago uh, or almost two decades ago that we identified that because of aquaculture. And we're seeing that now again, kind of with extreme events of things like marine heat waves. That's kind of the new one, um, newish one that we're starting to see where reports in places like Australia and New Zealand of marbling or kind of starvation of their finfish or complete die-offs of their green mussels, for instance, because of the temperature. So failure to recruit for their capture-based aquaculture. So again, kind of we're seeing a shift towards more hatchery-based practices to adapt and try to cope with what's happening. Um, and I should say the policies are not there right now to really help the farmers. So the farmers, unfortunately, are the ones and the companies are on the line right now as these things continue to increase. 
Just following up on that, and, and by the way, just to our listeners, that if you are a redheaded stepchild and you're writing a letter to the program to complain, it was yes. just an illustration. Just, an, just illustration. an illustration. I I used to dye my hair red because I was jealous and wanted to be a redhead. So it's purely out of um, jealousy of wanting to be a redhead. <laughs> well said. Just on that, I mean, we typically think of warming waters, and I know it was reported over the last year that I think there was a five degree Celsius increase in kind of the North Atlantic over previous years. And and that obviously, you know, is something we're talking about and how that impacts, especially aquaculture around, as you mentioned, the equator and where there's a, a lot of warm water already, but there's also the ancillary changes as well that occur in, in microorganisms that are kind of blooming, uh, you know, obviously for us salmon farmers, we have plankton blooms, uh, more recently, uh, micro jellyfish blooms as well. I, I take it that isn't just a salmon farming thing. I mean, aquacultures and fisheries are seeing this around the world. So what, what types of ancillary effects are you seeing? Not just, not just temperatures. Yeah, that's a really great point that you have these other externalities associated with temperature and other conditions that kind of exacerbate and compound what climate change is going to do. And it also makes it really hard to predict exactly what's going to happen and where it's going to occur because it's it's not uh, one for one. So our predictions on, say, harmful algal blooms, those algae, um, it, and sometimes they're not even harmful, but they're still a pain in the butt. Um, and create challenges for farmers and and fishers. But yeah, so we're seeing things like blooms occurring more frequently, especially uh, potentially toxic blooms. I can speak to certainly the ones here off the coast of California. We've had big ones kind of year after year that have absolutely really harmed uh, the Dungeness crab fisheries out here, which are some of our most valuable. Um, and they're actually suing, at least their association is suing the big oil industry. So you have fisheries and aquaculture taking on big oil because it's hurting, really hurting the bottom line of this other natural resource industry. So yeah, so we see those types of things. There's also kind of a linkage between disease and temperature as well. Obviously when a fish or um, other organism gets stressed, they then become more susceptible to the kind of viruses and bacteria that are floating around as well. But again, predicting those things, not a one for one, because especially in aquaculture, as we know, how you farm matters a lot. So if you're able to modify the conditions in the surrounding, if you're able to reduce densities or change feeding, add aeration, you have chillers, you can move things, then it makes the predictions of those impacts harder. Um, but we definitely see it Broadly speaking, there tends to be this association with temperature kind of exacerbating these things. So with these uh, effects of climate change, and I know I've seen in your materials, and I'm wondering if you can speak to this, just you speak globally how that may affect uh, shellfish and finfish producers, both, you know, challenges and opportunities, perhaps more locally with North America, how that relates to North America, again, both shellfish and finfish. What can we expect over the next decade, two, three, on, on how it's going to affect these industries, these sectors? Sure. So for North America, it's really hard because we don't have really good downscaled information for North America. So that's something that I'm working on right now with colleagues is trying to get better resolution because while the global models are great in terms of like larger swath patterns of where we might see hot spots or cold spots for a farmer, policymakers, things like that for a province or state, 
um, or even at the national level, we need better resolution um, to say what's going on. But we, we're not totally up a creek. We do have some information, although aquaculture is kind of behind the curve on the climate change science compared to agriculture and fisheries, we still have something. It's not totally empty. So what we're seeing is that very similar to kind of global patterns of the information we do have is that it really depends where you are and it depends this, on the species that you have. And it will probably uh, be variable um, depending on the measures that we're able to take and the interventions and um, how adaptive the system is. But in general, we see some evidence of positives. So for instance, um, up in Newfoundland, some research has been done to show that mollusks might be better off because of increased precipitation that's anticipated, which increases the potential for runoff, which increases nutrients, which increases feed, right? So you could have a boom, but then that's balanced with temperature. So that could actually cause uh, issues with growth or blooms that would then backfire and result in reduction. Um, and then on, say, the Pacific coast, we see things like higher levels of ocean acidification um, and changes potentially in, in reductions in chlorophyll that could result in, in issues for bivalves. And then for finfish, it's a bit complicated um, because they tend across the board of all studies that I've uh, been a part of are tend to be more flexible. And that's largely because you control their feed. <laughs> you don't have that uh, kind of compounding issue that bivalves, and they also aren't calcifiers. So kind of have two things going for them around climate change. But then a really important aspect of our work is building in the policy limitations around finfish. So that can make a system more vulnerable because there isn't support there. There's not insurance or they kind of whatever legal issues may be happening that can make that system a bit more vulnerable and constrained to be flexible. So it's a total kind of social dimension um, of aquaculture that may be more of an issue for finfish than than for some species anyway, than say the direct issues of climate change. Obviously, aquaculture is a business. So why is climate change important? And should climate change be part, if it's not already, of an aquaculture's uh, producer's strategic business planning in terms of risk assessments? Yeah, I, I would say certainly um, from just a bottom line perspective, it's it's nice to have some sense of backup plan, right? And as I kind of previously mentioned, the, the policy, the system structure is not there yet for most aquaculture. Aquaculture is this kind of in-between world for at least in North America, um, certainly for the United States, of their kind of agriculture, their kind of fishery, especially for marine. And so who's responsible and how they get support tends to kind of fall through the cracks. And it's a bit harder for the industry to get larger system-wide kickbacks or subsidies or something like that when something goes wrong. So unfortunately, right now we're in the kind of coping phase. And that means the farmers have to care uh, because things like more extreme events are coming down the pipeline. So while the averages maybe won't be as big of an issue for a lot of species, for instance, salmon, man, they have a huge thermal tolerance range in terms of how they can grow and what is suitable, right? And maybe it's not the optimum in certain time periods, but for the most part, they can handle a lot of variability, which is why they're probably grown. Aquaculturalists are really good at choosing things <laughs> that are good at growing in captivity. That's not by chance. Um, however, 
what we're finding for some of the research is these acute events, the really spikes in temperature, the harmful algal blooms, things that are a bit more shock-like are probably going to be the thing that's that's most important, at least in the short term. Um, and as that kind of uh, basement rises up with temperature, that's going to kind of reduce the ability of a system to be responsive and could exacerbate those extreme events on average. So from my perspective, it's it's kind of be prepared, have a plan of how are you going to potentially intervene. And as people become more and governments become more interested in studying standards for climate change, it might just behoove the industry to, to be a bit more proactive in that process to begin with, because policies are coming down the pipeline that are probably going to require something of monitoring related to aquaculture and any kind of externalities related to that. So we, we've come to the part of the program where you're going to solve this all for us. Oh, geez. Um, come, up with the, <laughs> come up with all the solutions. But yeah. And you have mentioned a few, but I'm just thinking here about, uh, you know, mitigation and avoidance of the impacts and how aquaculture specifically um, may change in the future. You mentioned there's policy, there's, you know, obviously technology, there's species selection, there's location. But what are kind of the top two or three for you that, that that aquaculture businesses should be aware of that, hey, this is, you know, how they're going to address this issue? Uh, and, and give us a bit of a timeline on this, too. Are we talking five years? Or are we talking 50 years? Yeah, so some of our research is showing that, well, aquaculture is already being impacted now. That is clear. Um, so the impacts are here, and they're likely just going to get, on average, worse. Um, what we see is that that kind of mid-century mark seems to be the kind of worst case scenario or the, the highest levels of change are going to precipitate in the absence of massive changes to how we emit, right? So I want to remind everybody that we're putting this in and putting it on the aquaculture, on the farmers, on the businesses to uh, to accommodate, to, to mitigate some of their emissions or adapt to what's coming. But ultimately, right, the, the responsible thing to do is that we lower emissions globally. Like that's what really would solve this. But that's very, very hard in an oil based kind of economy. So in the absence of that, kind of the things that are already happening in the coping state for, for farmers is what we see. But the kind of key to this is an equity issue that, that I want to highlight of like these types of strategies from sheltering your tanks, right? Providing shade is like the cheapest thing you can do. Um, but maybe that's not enough um, if the conditions are really extreme like they are in say the Gulf of Mexico is a really good example. The South and Gulf of Mexico, we're doing some work right now showing that they're going to be pretty hard hit, not only in the freshwater aquaculture space, but also the marine aquaculture space. And so it may not be enough to do those kind of low inexpensive things and more expensive interventions have to occur, like the ones you were describing of switching species. Like that is not an easy thing to do and is very expensive. Genetic modification, obviously kind of the the go-to for a lot of things, not just kind of tolerance of disease and heat, um, but again, expensive and that takes time and maybe you don't have that time. And of course, relocation, that is like the most inequitable <laughs> out of all of it of like, sure, technically you can go and move somewhere else, but that's a huge ask. And certainly for small scale farms, that's not doable. So 
there are options and there are adaptations, but the equity of those those responses, um, the the policy isn't matching what we're seeing, and it's again falling on the farmers, on the companies, to have to respond. And while that is very important that they do. It's not the ideal, especially when we see kind of the things that are being put in place for other sectors like agriculture and fisheries, um, where you have these emergency funds for really bad years. And those aren't insurance types of um, feedbacks aren't as common um, and ubiquitous for aquaculture. Is there any specific knowledge gaps that you want to still, you know, that we need to do more research on that's going to be beneficial for the industry? Sure. Yeah, I would say a big one is seaweed. Farm seaweed, which is having its day in the sun right now and shows so much potential because it is photosynthetic or many species are. And so you have this kind of semi untapped potential because 90% of that production is happening in Asia and not in places like North America, though that is changing pretty rapidly. Um, And so there is this kind of grand potential that a lot of people are lumping it into things like marine carbon dioxide removal mechanisms um, and biofuels or biochar or animal feed to reduce the methane emissions um, or sinking it, right? Which is not economical at all, but geological time-wise for sequestering carbon could be um, part of the solution. But there's so little that we know about really what seaweed is capable of doing and at what scale, the research just isn't there yet. Um, and so, you know, we're at this kind of juncture of, it seems really great. We, of the information we do have, it seems high, a high level of potential, um, but to what extent, right? And at what scale could this be beneficial for carbon dioxide removal or otherwise? Um, but I should say some of the work we found is that while there's kind of consensus that it's not a global solution, some of our research that's aquaculture focused looks has looked at kind of that potential of offsetting for aquaculture. And that looks more likely that the industry could really kind of benefit from integrating seaweeds into the production system, though the carbon market and all of that is still yet to be seen um, to provide kind of kickback for that benefit. But things like integrated multi-trophic aquaculture, things that are already kind of coming online and have been studied for a while now, um, but are now being kind of seen through a carbon lens um, is something I think is needing more investigation, um, but people are really excited about. I think uh, you've, you've written the next headline. I've, I don't know if I've read it, but uh, seaweed, it's day in the sun. I, I think that's brilliant for many, many reasons. Well done. Um, <laughs> Uh, just as we're coming up at the end here and, and before we get back to our trivia question, I want to divert a little because it wasn't in your bio and you mentioned uh, sturgeon and, and conservation oh, yeah. programs. So, yeah, and I can tell by your face, it's a true passion for you, um, as was uh, enhancement and, and conservation fisheries for me. And that's why I got into aquaculture. So I just want to spend a couple of minutes exploring what that program was, uh, why it was there and, and maybe what the results have been. Uh, where is that all taking place? Yeah, so I had the fortune to be able to be part of the kind of sturgeon lineage in California. Uh, California actually has the largest production of um, sturgeon in the United States. Fun fact. Um, And I was actually part of the group that had the first successful um, 
breeding program for green sturgeon, which are heavily threatened um, and are endemic to the state of California. So I fortunately was the technician that was responsible for taking care of all the little guys and feeding them and doing all those things, um, which really kind of, you know, you start anthropomorphizing um, because they look like little puppies and they all have their own personality. Thousands of them have their own personalities. So you're taking care of them. Um, so that program, um, I'm pretty sure is still going. Um, all of my colleagues that are there still working on white and green sturgeon. Um, they're doing a lot of research on kind of thermal regulation, trying to understand and protect, provide um, managers with uh, information on temperature regimes, what they prefer, how that changes their, how they digest and how they feed and all of that. So that's still all going on and then going straight to the California Department of Fish and Wildlife that then kind of sets standards and regulations around um, those species. So I was a very small part of that, but it was like the seed um, that got me into aquaculture. Um, and I feel like it gives you a, a better sense of, especially when I'm working on these global models of remembering kind of like it's people that are working behind this space. And it's these organisms that we care about both from a food perspective, certainly important, but also species that are heavily endangered um, due to usually overfishing or loss of habitat, something like that. And so working in that space and how that can fit in to the conversation is, is something that's really important, highly contentious, but really, really important. Well, you know, we, we spent almost half an hour talking about kind of ocean um, climate change, but just thinking about sturgeon and fish that, you know, spend a lot of their life in the river systems, that is uh, that is something significant. I mean, sturgeon have adapted for hundreds, thousands of years, but there's there's a real threat here to, uh, yeah. to, to you know, the balance of river systems. Yeah, it's huge. And actually, it's a major, that's the other kind of major gap that I should mention is that how we're understanding the balance between what's coming down the pipeline for freshwater aquaculture versus marine, it's really hard to say, especially because we don't have a global map um, of where freshwater aquaculture is. We have a general sense of things, obviously, again, hard bias and skew towards production in Asia, but there's tons of freshwater aquaculture happening um, in North America. Well, you know, relative um, and things that are highly valuable like sturgeon and actually some of the work that is hopefully going to be published in the next month or so we did a downscaled evaluation of kind of the threats to freshwater aquaculture and you hit it the nail on the head of things like sturgeon um, and trout are going to be heavily impacted biologically from the changes in thermal stress that's coming down because of where they're farmed now um, but other things we found in this study and why downscaling is so important, we found other things and other threats are more important to um, other species. So catfish, they're actually going to do a little better biologically um, because they're catfish. Same with tilapia that can grow in literally anything. Um, but what we find what is the real threat for that industry is going to be wet bulb temperature. So the temperature that becomes a threat to the human workforce, that it gets so hot that we can't regulate. And we can't be safe when we're working in those conditions um, because of humidity and temperature combined. If you can't sweat, you're in trouble. Um, so areas like in the South and Southwest uh, are gonna be pretty heavy hit. And of course, the ubiquitous thing that we're finding in that particular study, water limitation for all species um, in those locations. And so 
really depending on where you are and what species you're growing will dictate kind of the, the stressors. But certainly, at least in North America, freshwater aquaculture, it's going to be challenged um, and, and doesn't have necessarily the diverse kind of array of species that we tend to see in marine, or at least as diverse. You uh, mentioned uh, some studies that may be upcoming in the next month mm -hmm. that people can look for and, and your well-published uh, uh, previous studies as well. Where can people uh, visit to see much of your research uh, that's coming down and, and is already published? You can, of course, um, go to my website. That's a really great one. Um, you could just search the Freilich Lab. I know it's, it's, it's a challenging name, um, but unique, right? So it'll be easy to find. Um, you can also keep an eye out on uh, the social networks, including Blue Sky. So I just kind of went over there and we'll publicize any papers um, that we publish, including the one that we just published yesterday um, on kind of community perceptions of where aquaculture should go in the state of California um, across multiple vocal um, community groups. We're looking forward to uh, seeing that new study that's coming out. That sounds very interesting. And thanks, uh, Hallie, for your insights today. But before you go, we'll um, see if you can uh, answer our trivia question. Uh, just to repeat the question, the earliest evidence of fish farming dates back to ancient China, Egypt, and Rome. But the modern form of fish farming was introduced in 1733. That's how modern it was. <laughs> In which European country was modern fish farming first introduced? I would like to think that it's Norway, but uh, I think that was closer to the 1970s where somebody um, started in their backyard with just like a pen and some some floats. Uh, so while I want it to be Norway, I don't think it's Norway, but um, that's what I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with Norway. Go no, with it's not Norway, but good guess. It's Thank Germany, you. actually. Oh, Germany. <laughs> Yeah, Germany. Yeah. That's uh, that's the first uh, introduction of modern fish farming. Amazing. Okay, what what species do we know? How was it grown? Oh, good question. I I I guess my research didn't go as far as the species. <laughs> no, you're leaving me on a cliffhanger. Of, like they did it, but you're not going to know what they did or how they did it. I will tell you the answer. To Thank you. Well, you are, you are a uh, journalist, Marilyn, so maybe this can be a, a topic for one of your future pieces. So uh, so brilliant. Well, well, thanks very much, uh, Holly. It was really, really interesting. It's a multifaceted, multi-layered subject. I'm sure we could have done another two hours on it, but uh, but that's great. Lots, uh, lots for people to learn. So thank you very much for spending your time with us, and uh, we'll, we'll look forward to meeting up again. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. If you have a comment on today's episode, or would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, connect with Aquaculture North America on Twitter or through our LinkedIn and Facebook pages. This podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species.